I kind of create to what I like to do. And I'm not trying to please anybody else, because when you start pleasing and you become a collage of other people's opinions, it's a problem. Hello and welcome to Beyond Networking, the show where we help you build a sustainable career in an unpredictable world. If you learn to weave a network of people who trust you, who feel heard, understood, and valued in your presence, there will always be someone willing to hire you, buy from you, or work with you. So what are you waiting for? Let's go Beyond Networking. Okay, welcome, welcome. I'm Brian Miller. If you're new here, I am a former professional magician turned author, speaker, coach, and consultant on human connection. And today's guest is Joe Young. For decades, Joe has been making the world a better, happier place. Joe is a cartoonist, a filmmaker, producer, and educator. He's the president of Joe Young Studios, a multimedia agency which provides arts programming for businesses and organizations. He's also the founder and executive director of a youth arts nonprofit. His projects include Hartford, Connecticut's first major film project, Diamond Rough, and the one-time Guinness World Record for the world's longest comic strip. How cool is that? I met Joe nearly 10 years ago by chance of having just moved to Connecticut and needing to do some networking at an open mic night. We've watched each other's careers evolve from afar, but haven't been in touch in many, many years. That is, until the 2020 pandemic. Joe was gearing up for a massive $1 million fundraising project for his new documentary film, When the Crisis Struck. Forced to cancel the event, Joe was faced with a choice. Give up the project he's been working so hard to achieve or find a new way forward. I reached out in that moment to invite him on the podcast so we could chat about his life, career, and his new documentary project. This conversation was so much more than I bargained for. Joe explains why your gift is different from your passion and what to do with either. Some thoughts on monetizing art the evolution of cartooning from analog to digital, his new documentary project and what's going to happen now, uh, how to connect with an audience in a non-live format like comic strips or films, how to handle negative feedback, the role of luck and success, advice for young professionals in an impossibly unpredictable world, and, of course, Joe shares his story of a chance encounter with lasting impact. Plus, Joe flips the script near the end of this conversation, and he asks me about getting my TEDx talk. So you'll get to hear that story from me in its entirety for, I think, the first time publicly. This episode is a true celebration of art, beauty, and joy. Remember to check the show notes on beyondnetworkingpodcast.com for related links, and stay until the end for my biggest takeaways from this episode. And now, I give you Mr. Joe Young. All right, Joe, thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate your time. Oh, it's a pleasure, Brian, to uh, reconnect again. You're looking good. Oh, thank you. You're like Benjamin Button. You you get younger every time I see you. (laughs) You and I, uh, we met for the first time, goodness, 2010, I want to say somewhere around there, I uh, through through a mutual friend. It was John Ram, actually. Do you remember John? Oh, oh yeah, yeah, John Ram. Yes, that's right. I haven't talked to him in years. No, no, I haven't talked to him in a while either. But I remember I had just moved to Connecticut, um, and and yeah, about ten years ago, and he was trying to get me involved in the local community, and I must have attended an artist open mic that you were running at some point. I don't, I don't know. You, you do a lot of things. So, so let's, Mm. let's start here. If you're just meeting someone for the first time uh, and they ask you, what do you do? What's your answer these days? You know, there's so many things. So I I say a producer, I'm a producer slash creator. Producer slash creator. What's the most common follow-up question you get? If you say that some, you say you're a producer and, and what does somebody say to that? 
what do you produce? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so it leads to more questions. All right. So, I so gotta... let's go down that rabbit hole. What do you produce? <laughs> well, I, I, I do films and projects and events, uh, basically. Films, uh, projects, events. Uh, so give me a little bit more yeah. about that. So so what what is it like? Because I think there's a lot of people who, who hear that term a lot. They hear producer, but they really have no idea. So let's say film producer. What does it mean to be a film producer? What does it mean to you? <laughs> And again, you know, a producer can be an executive producer, could be a regular producer, an associate producer. To me, I define myself as an executive producer to take something from nothing and bring it to reality. Something from nothing. I love that. That's very, that's very magical. That reminds me of being a magician. Uh, oh, you were an amazing magician. <laughs> you were amazing as a well, magician. I appreciate that. So when you say take something from nothing, as a producer, are you the one coming up with the concept? Are you taking someone else's concept and bringing that to light? How does that process go? I, I've done it both ways, uh, producing someone's project and, of course, producing more of my projects. Uh, so I remember years ago I did a uh, – I, I, I was given a um, – some grant money to do a project in Hartford and I work with a lot of kids and my background uh, is cartooning. Hmm. And so I did a big uh, uh, comic strip, the length of a football field in Hartford. Wow. So I took this idea from nothing and turned it into a football field. I mean, a comic strip, the length of a football <laughs> field. Wow. That that's so wild. So what, what, uh, what was the result of that? Well, again, any, you know, I believe in, Karma, people always think about bad karma, but I also believe in good karma, too. So I wanted to serve a lot of kids and teach them the art of cartooning, mm -hmm. uh, because cartooning engulfs writing and drawing. And if you can write the alphabet or you could do geometric shape, you can draw. So I wanted to offer a cartooning uh, uh, summer camp where kids would focus on literacy. And so I got the, the city of Hartford donated a park. We built a big easel in the park and we had the whole facilities and we created a comic strip, the length of a football field. And we had 5,000 kids from New England come. Wow. And I was thinking it was just a cool project. Then the Hartford Current covers it, Brian. And then it hits the Associated Press. Wow. Then it goes crazy. The Boston Globe gives me a page and a half. New York Times, uh, a full page. USA Today. Uh, Jet Magazine <laughs> and National Report. So sometimes when you're doing good stuff, good things happen. Wow, that's that's amazing how many things came out of just wanting to to give back to 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 do something. Where where did that instinct come from? I, you know, I, I feel like there's a lot of people that walk around going, I I wish I could do more, but never do anything. Right. But never actually take that that step or, or, or think, I wish I could do more, but I don't I don't have the money or I wish I could do more. But I don't have the time. What do you say to people like that? Well, I never let money hold me back from getting something done. If the key, I think, to Brian, is knowing what your gift and your passion is to me. And to me, gift and passion are two different things. Uh, your passion is something you like to do. Uh, you enjoy playing basketball. You enjoy sewing or knitting. But your gift is that thing that you are born to do, that you wake up doing. You just have to do it. It's like breathing. Mm -hmm. And I think if you can identify your gift, uh, you can do anything you want to do. So what do you think these days about the kind of that hashtag hustle culture that we're seeing all over the Internet? I, I get worried that there's a whole generation of kids that are being told, uh, and especially right now, teens and young adults that are being told, like if you have a, a gift, right, you're just what you're describing as a gift is something that you're just born to do that you got. What do you, you know? Oh, you, you your gift is is cartooning. You love cartooning. That's what gets you. That's what sets your soul on fire. I think there's a whole generation that's being told right now. You must be somehow generating some hustle side income with that. You have you got to be figuring out how to monetize that. You got to get some ads on that. You what do you say to what do you think about? That do you, do you think there's value in just pursuing our gifts because they're they're self fulfilling, or do you think you 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 have an obligation to to try to take your gift in and monetize it and make it into a career? Well, I think at the end of the day, when you have a gift, is really not about the money. But I I found that if it is your gift and you master it, the money will come. But that's secondary. You would do it if there was no money. 
And a lot of people, you know, I, I have the saying that I say when I speak, if you run after success, success runs away. But if you run after excellence, success comes towards you. Mm. But I think that it's not good to always try to monetize your gift because your gift is the place where you have peace and with money comes pressure and compromise. Um, but I think it is, I don't think it's good advice to always try to monetize your gift because that's your freedom. That's your happiness. Now, if you can make money off it after a while and you don't want to do something else that that's cool. But I think the main thing is to enjoy your God gift is the bottom line. I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate what you just said. And I, I, I hope everybody, everybody should rewind and listen to that again. That was so powerful and so relevant um, with, with the culture right now. I find myself constantly telling people, you know, like, so I was a full-time magician and I was very, very lucky for, for 10 years. I was, and I, I, I did pretty well for myself. I toured nationally, but there's a, but I started to hate magic. And that's why I, I, I found, you know, this way to go into being a writer and a speaker and, and all these other things that I do now and podcast and to, to take things I care about and, and shift how I do them because I loved magic all my life. I was obsessed with magic. I lived and breathed it. I, I, it's all I wanted to do and talk about until I was a full-time magician. And the more successful I got, the less I enjoyed magic because what happened is it went from something that I got to do to becoming something I had to do. And I think what you were just talking about just now about how the compromise, you use the word compromise, I say this all the time, as soon as you are doing your passion or your art or your gift for a living, you have to make a compromise on it because no one will pay you to just very, very few people get paid, right? Some people do. Very few people get paid to just do their art just the way they see it in their head and only the way they see it in their head while ignoring everybody else. You you have to find a way to take your gift and find what the market is willing to pay for and figure out how to put it somewhere in the middle, right? So you That's have right. to compromise on your gift, on your art um, in order to make a living and and man, there's something to be said for just doing it because it lights you up, right? That's right. That's why you do it. You can make money off your passion. That's a different Yes, story. yes. On that note, take us back. How did you end up making a living with your gift? What were the steps? Like, take me back. Where Where were you before you were a uh, successful cartoonist? You know, what? before it well, all we, started? We, we have to go back to age seven. Okay, take me to age seven. <laughs> age seven... It's kind of crazy because I was doing then what I'm doing now, taking something and turning it into something with uh, uh, being creative. I've always wanted to be a writer. Uh, so if you look at my movie Diamond Rough or the different properties or even my scruples, comic strips, it's always someone overcoming adversity. And so at seven, I wrote my first play called John Lee, where he was fighting monsters and I showcased it in front of my family. I have seven brothers and sisters, uh, Brian, three sets of twins. So to me, it was like I was on Broadway. Three sets of twins. All fraternal. Wow. I'm a twin. Right. But And so I brought my family uh, down to see my play. And to me, that was like being on Broadway, man, performing on Broadway. You know, when I did Diamond Rough, uh, we had the premiere at the Bush. And I, had, I think I had 4,000 people show up. But to me, that filling at seven was just as impactful is when I was in my 40s doing Diamond Rough. So um, so it, it started there. Uh, and I, even though I would say actually my passion is cartooning, my gift as I get older uh, would be probably producing, putting things together and making it happen. Uh, and, and, and working hard, being tenacious, having follow through, I think that's my, my, my gift. And so at that young age, I, I was doing that and then I discovered later on that I could draw and I combined the two things, the writing with the drawing and came up with a comic strip. And I love humor. I love, you know, building your audience up for surprise. And so I combined all those and came out with a comic strip. And once I did that, I started a nonprofit. And when you do that, people want you to teach their kids cartooning. So I, I made that thing work. And then animation became accessible to the common man with technology in the 90s. So then I started my animated 
films and things like that. Wow. And the world came to me. That's a, that's, oh, that's amazing. So there's so many things I, I, I could talk about there. I, I love the stepping stones there. I, I think it's so important. One of the reasons I do this podcast is for there, there's, you know, increasingly this disconnect between the amount of work, the amount of perseverance, the amount of failures, the amount of years it takes to be successful. And the, you know, on Instagram, all you see is the success, right? You just see people who've already made it or are faking like they've already made it sometimes, often. And so I think that there's a real disconnect with younger folks now and young professionals, even, you know, not just like, you know, not just teenagers, but, you know, you can be 25, 28, 35. I, I talk to people who are 35. Why aren't I successful yet? You know, and it's like some, this stuff takes a long time and, and it doesn't happen on the same path. Not everybody takes the same path. In fact, every person I know who's been really successful if you ask them about their story, they'll say, well, I have kind of an unusual story. Like everybody <laughs> thinks they have an unusual story. No, the only way to success is an unusual story. There are no usual paths to being really no. successful, right? We've all pivoted and 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 made a, adapted along the way. So let, let me go back to cartooning because that was my first love, my first passion, something you don't know until this moment. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> when I was a kid, I went to cartooning camps. I grew up in Buffalo, um, Buffalo, New York, and I went to cartooning camps. I had My mom found actually a couple years ago all of my notebooks, just dozens and dozens of notebooks of comic strips. And I, I, I invented a comic strip when I was like six or seven with characters and I drew it for years and years. I have hundreds and hundreds of three panels and, and Sunday strips that I colored in just like the papers. And so cartooning, I think there's a lot of people who look at cartooning, look at a comic strip and think it's incredibly simple. They just see a couple of panels and some pictures and some words. Talk us through what it's actually like to produce, uh, to create like as something as seemingly simple as a three panel comic strip. What are the common misconceptions about that? Well, like you said, you, you, it, people think it, it's simple, but it's really a lot of work. I mean, first you have to come up with the idea, which is what is the hardest things, the concept. Uh, then you have to lay it out, uh, pencil it. Then you're getting into word balloons, making sure your penmanship, your lettering is correct. You have to pencil it. You have to ink it uh, and, you know, color it whichever way or scan it or whatever. But it's it's a lot of work. You know, one strip used to take me a couple hours. It would take me six hours as an amateur to produce one three panel comic strip. And that's after mm -hmm. I had the idea. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's, it's a lot of work, but it's a great art because it combines writing and, and drawing. Yeah, you mentioned, and sometimes the writing is just as important as the uh, is the drawing. You see, multi million dollar strips like The Far Side doesn't look like the best drawn. Or if you're talking animation, you look at South Park or Beavis and Butthead, yeah. not the best drawn technically, but the writing is so good. It doesn't matter what the drawing is. I mean, to me, the first cartoonists were cavemen, <laughs> and we look at their work today, yeah, and we're inspired. Yeah, because it communicates and you can give, an idea. You give a lot of great messages. Yeah, without preaching to someone. Oh, I love that. Yeah, that you can you can communicate an idea without being preachy. You can actually you can kind of backdoor ideas about the world. Like my, I grew up my, I was obsessed with, and to this day I'm obsessed with Calvin and Hobbes, all time favorite comic strip. I just was obsessed with it, and I loved that Calvin and Hobbes was like social and political commentary through the eyes of a six year old. Right. You're reading a comic strip about a six year old and his stuffed tiger that he thinks is a real tiger in his imagination. And on this on, on the surface, it's just it's it's fun and quirky and silly and cute. But the ideas contained within it, I still have them in my head. I read that obsessively as a kid and I still think about Calvin and Hobbes. It's some of the most like profound art I've ever read. And I have a philosophy degree. And like right there in this comic strip that I was reading as a kid was most of the really important life concepts. I, I love that. It's, it's funny because when I do my cartooning classes, I always make references to the great ones. And I say one of the greatest uh, uh, comic strip artists to ever live is Bill Watterson of Kelvin and Hobbes. Yeah. Uh, you also have some great contemporary guys like um, Aaron Magruder who does the boondocks. Yes. Uh, years ago, there was 
uh, Walt Kelly, he did a strip called Pogo, which was too sophisticated for the masses. Huh. Uh, so there, and even Schultz was, was great. Oh yeah. You, you, you know, so, but cartooning is a great way to get a message across with a few lines. So let me ask you about that then. Has, do you feel like the technology has helped the world of cartooning has made it better? Or do you think the ability to kind of copy paste, um, has made it worse? And what I'm thinking of is, is I, I, one of my other favorites was Garfield. I loved Garfield. And I still... <laughs> Jim Davis. Yeah, Jim Davis, right? And I still love Garfield, but I've watched over the last couple of years some documentaries behind the scenes where he shows you how they make Garfield now. And there's mm-hmm. nothing being done new now. He writes the script, right? So it's a new script for each strip. But then they have every possible position of every possible character saved. And they just have to go drag and drop. And that becomes a strip and it goes out digitally, right? There's no hand to paper. There's no new poses anymore. They've got it all. Is that better or worse or just different? Well, I think it works both ways. It takes away from the beauty of the art. Mm when you can't do it from, from scratch, like anything else. I mean, we could put stuff in the microwave, but nothing beats cooking, uh-huh. it, 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 you know, but then because of time and things else and with technology, cartooning is now animated mm. and it gives the artist another vehicle to express themselves. So I think it goes either way, but if you want to master cartooning and be really successful at it, I think you need to do it the old way and learn the fundamentals. It's kind of like doing a, a crossover in, in basketball and you know not a dribble. Yeah. 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 That's 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 great. And I I think um where where would you tell parents these days if um you know if if their kids really into cartooning, uh maybe they don't have access to like a cartooning class or a camp like you do. Maybe they don't have the physical access or the financial access. What would you tell parents if uh, to get their kids into it? What what should they be doing? Go to YouTube. Everything's on YouTube. Yeah. yeah, just just go there. Is there any particular... I usually don't ask for specific references like this, but I think it might be useful. Um, is there a specific YouTube channel you have in mind that, that, is, that is actually useful for that? Or if not, you can tell me later. I can put them in the show notes for anybody. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah no, there, 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 there's a few. And again, I, it's good to do exploration because someone's style might not match your kid's yeah. learning or interest. So there's a bunch on YouTube. Yeah, yeah. Is it still worthwhile to just pull out your favorite comic strips, whether digitally or 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 the you know books or whatever now, and and kind of just copy, not not trace, but but try to replicate them, try to copy them? I did that. I used to draw Pokemon characters as a kid and try to replicate them as best I could. <laughs> is there value in that? Oh, of course it is. You and you learn different styles. Uh, Jap- anime is real big now. Japanese yeah. anime is huge now in the schools. But what I do, if someone is serious about cartooning, I would suggest you read to me the Bible of comic strips. And it's called Backstage to the Strips by Mort Walker. Mm. He did Beetle Bailey, yes, High and Lowest. But it's kind of like the encyclopedia. It shows you behind the stories, their personal lives, their successes. And it's called uh, Backstage to the Strips Great by Mort Walker. Great. I encourage anybody who's serious about comic strips to read that book. Fantastic. I'll make sure that there's a link to that in the uh, the show yep. notes. So let's let's pivot a little bit here. The 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 reason that we're actually having uh having this conversation uh today is because um just for those who may be listening in the future, maybe it's 2023 right now and you're listening or watching this. Wouldn't that be wonderful if people were still watching this in in uh, 2023? Uh we are recording this in the middle of the 2020 coronavirus pandemic. So we are quarantined, we are on lockdown, and I have no idea if you're listening in the future if that's going to sound like a normal thing to you, if that's going to become the new normal, or if that's going to be like, whoa, my God, I forgot about that. So um, so right now, you were supposed to be doing just yesterday, you had set up for a long time, right? You had planned this big fundraiser for your new um for your new documentary project and it had to be canceled. And so I I reached out, we reconnected. I said, let's talk about it. So talk us through what is this new documentary project? Um, At least let's talk about it first. What was it going to be until this pandemic? And then if, if it's changed, then you tell me what's changed, but what is the project? Okay. Well, one of the things I love to do, Brian, kind of like you is to motivate people. And I like to do it through, 
action as opposed to just talking about it. And years ago, I did a project called Diamond Rough, where I raised uh, about a million dollars, half a million in cash, half a million in in kind. And it was an independent film. It was one of the first homeroom films in Hartford ever done. And a lot of people said, how'd you do it? And I said, well, I followed through on my gift and I surrounded myself with really good people. Now, a little interesting fact about that, which is leading to where I'm going is, I jump-started that in 2008. I went in front of YouTube and said, I'm gonna pull this project off in two years. Guess what happens? One of the biggest recessions in history in 2008. What should have took me two years took me five years because of the recession. But it's about turning adversity into opportunity. Without the recession, I couldn't have done the movie. Actors were half price. It was a SAG movie. Actors were half price. Buildings were half price. People were donating. People were more uh, loving at that time to, to give things. So without the recession, I couldn't have done Diamond Rough. Now, I wanted to do another big project. Every six, five to 10 years, I do a big project. And so I wanted to make a documentary to inspire people that they can do anything, especially people over 50 or anybody who was hustling is never too late. So I went in front of YouTube January 18th and said, I'm gonna raise a million dollars in 365 days. I've never done it in that period of time. I've probably seen it over a decade, but never at one time. So I wanted to challenge myself too. So I made this statement and through sponsorships and grants and fundraisers and events and investing property, I, I, I was, you know, I'm still going to do it. And I said a million, not because I really care about the money, but when you say stuff like million dollars, it's just sexy to people, <laughs> <laughs> you know, when they, when, when they hear that. And so I, I, I put it out there. Uh, I started January 8th within Two weeks, I had about 10 people involved. Uh, within three weeks, we had 20 people involved. I It was by myself. We got a beautiful office, the first floor of a building. And, I'm, and people were watching me do these things. And so I was going to, I'm going to turn the journey of making the documentary into a documentary. And it's called Creator Joe Young. So we're on our way. Things are happening. All of a sudden, here comes the pandemic. And it just flipped everything. Like you said, yesterday, we had a huge fundraiser, which is going to bring because we do our projections. When you do it long enough, Brian, you know, pretty much how much money you're going to raise based upon the amount of people who's coming, what you do in advance. And it was a really big kickoff, hard launch for it. And we can't do it because more than uh, 10 people at that time, a hundred people couldn't congregate. Now it's 10 and we had over 200 people coming. So it's, it, it, it shut us down, but it allowed me to rethink and to work on my plan, but we're still, we're still doing it. What we're grappling with now, the team is, uh, when, when, when this thing's all over, do we start from where we left off or do we start fresh? Mm. And so, uh, but it, it, it's making me think even more creatively. How do you raise the money and also bringing people together? And look, you reached out to me. Yeah. Who knows who may see this? Yeah. We connected. We connected again. And I, I, I went through all your uh, material, your website. I was inspired about your story about where you met the woman on the plane <laughs> and where, where it took you. So had not this epidemic pandemic happened i might not have been inspired by you well thank you for that i what a that's a i think that's not only a great way to look at the current situation but it's the only way to look at any situation uh, you know uh, there's you can only can you can't control what's going on outside of yourself right you can just control your you control what you're doing and and more than that you can control your your judgment and your response and your reaction Ooh. to things you can choose to be proactive or reactive right there's all these different things and it sounds like you've always been proactive so something happened and as soon as it happened you went okay we're still going to do this it's going to look different than i've been planning on it looking and you start the creative wheels going to you know what's going to be different about it now how are we going to get people right cuz you have to change the messaging now cuz the message 
to those same people, yes. those same 200 people, it's going to be very different in three or six months um, after, you know, a, a worse economic crash than like 9-11 and the 2008 uh, crash combined, right? I mean, just unprecedented times. We're Close in. to the Great Depression, I would say. Yeah. Would yeah, I mean, this is a one in a hundred years. Should anybody be listening to this a few years from now? This is a one in a hundred <laughs> years and, and we're still having, we're in the early stages somewhat. So we're not yes. really sure how it's all going to shake out as of now, as we're having this conversation. So, um, okay, so that's that's great. So it's, it's kind of a meta documentary. It's a documentary about the process of making a documentary. Is that <laughs> exactly. it? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And then we interview millionaires on how they think that you can raise the money. We also have kids who are nine years old giving their advice. And actually, the young kids are just as profound as the older. <laughs> yeah. What's kid president got to say about this right now? That's what I want to know. But, but you know, Brian, I've always turned adversity into opportunity. I was at 21 and I was a single parent with my son, Kyle. Mm. I know and Kyle. Kyle, I, I met you Kyle. Know yeah, Kyle. I met, a long <laughs> you time. Know I Kyle. haven't seen him in a long time, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. But anyways, I was a single parent. I didn't know what to do. My mother was still alive then, who was my greatest mentor and inspiration. And she said, Joe, just keep going. And it was at that point where I had couldn't go out with my friends like I used to. Mm. And I concentrated on mastering the art of cartooning. And so I'm a, a single parent. I'm like, what am I going to do? But because of that situation, I got really good at my craft. And then six months later or a year later, I was syndicated by a new service out of New York. Wow. So, it, it, again, it's another story of turning adversity into opportunity. That's great. When you're talking about cartooning, when you're talking about making a movie, um, you were both kind of, you know, we're both in the motivation and in the entertainment industry. Like we both have a hand in each. And mm -hmm. for me, I've mostly uh, over the years, mostly been a live performer, which is partly why the current situation is so difficult, right? That 90% that of my work is usually stepping on live stages in front of real audiences. Um, mm. So I'm pivoting like we all are. But um even my pivot right now to doing virtual programs is still mostly live with an audience just via webcam. So my question is, as a live performer, I'm a, I feed off the energy of the audience. I can tell where they are, how they're reacting to me, if they're connecting with me or not, how to, I pivot in the moment. But when you draw a comic strip, when you make a movie, you do the thing and then it's done and then you give it to, and then somebody watches it on their own like it, you you can't change the movie the way you made it in response to how someone's watching it right now right it's done mm -hmm. and then you send it out so that's a very different sort of thing than a live um performance or a live speech so my question is how do you connect with an audience when you can't get how do you know that your comic strip or your movie or your documentary is going to connect with an audience when you can't pivot in the moment and see their reactions well, I guess, I guess, because um, I'm getting older now, I'm a little bit older than you, Brian. But, and I'm sure you 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 feel the same way. When I create, I kind of create to what I like to do. And I'm not trying to please anybody else, because when you start pleasing and you become a collage of other people's opinions, it's a problem. So I just write what I love to write from my perspective. If that makes it sense. does. It does make sense. So, so I think you kind of just answered it, but then here, here's just straightforward the question. So then, a lot of people get really brought down by negative feedback. You know, a lot of people that have been Ooh. saying for years, "I wish I could. I want to write a blog." And you say, "Well, why don't you write a blog?" And then, "Well, I'm worried that people will think it's stupid or they won't like wow. it." Right? Uh, th that's all over. I'd love to make a move. I'd love to start a YouTube channel. Why haven't you? Well, I don't want. You know, I think maybe what if people don't like it and whatever. How do you handle negative feedback? What do you say to that? It's funny. I just I'm, I'm just done writing a book called "If It's a uh, Survival Guide for Emerging Artists," and my biggest chapter is how to deal with haters. Yes. And you know, Brian, in your position, you're in the spotlight, yeah. so people are going to take shots at you, mm -hmm. man. And it comes with the territory. Like I've heard before. If no one's taking shots at you, if people aren't criticizing you, you're doing something wrong. Jesus was criticized. <laughs> <laughs> you know, anybody, I don't know anybody who succeeded anything of, 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 of greatness that hasn't had shots taken at him. Yeah. 
It comes with it. That's what you sign up it's for. Like my, you know, you're not there to bake cookies. You're <laughs> trying to make a difference. That's so funny. My my mentor, one of the things he's, he, he references a lot, he goes, go on Amazon and look up Harry Potter and you're going to find a whole bunch of one-star reviews. Worst book ever written. <laughs> You know, you, uh, yeah, you can't, you can't please every, so it comes with the territory. The the problem is though, as artists and creatives, we're sensitive. That's how we're able to create the work, Mm -hmm. but then you got to deal with the criticisms in this age of social media and cowards behind the keyboard. Yeah. Yeah. So, so my question though is where, where's the line? Because on one hand I'm with you, I'm like, just right. Shun the non-believers, ignore the haters, do your art, make the art you believe it, you know, is, is, is valuable and worthwhile. On the other hand, as an artist, it's no use to me if I'm the only one who sees it, right. It's no use to the world. I mean, maybe it's useful to me, it, right. It could, it could be intrinsically valuable, but if I'm making art, I, I'm designing, I, I want the world, somebody to get value out of it. Right. And, and so if people don't like it, do I have an obligation of, as an artist to at least pay attention and try to create art that, that people do like, like, you understand what I'm asking? Like where? Oh no, your greatest, your greatest mentors are the critics at the same time, even though I'm contradicting myself because you've got to see what negative is. There may be something there. I call it constructive criticism. Okay. Okay. So, so I, I find myself, tell me if you agree with this. I, I find myself giving this advice to a lot of young artists and entrepreneurs, business folks, and just saying, you know, you need to figure out who's giving you negative feedback and doesn't care about you, right? The people who mm. are just the flybys, right? The comments just to be negative and stuff, you can ignore those. But then on the other hand, you need to figure out there are people who genuinely want you to succeed that are giving you quote negative feedback and 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 you got to pay attention to those people right the the people that actually want you to be great that would love for you to be great and are giving you some negative criticism maybe it's not negative criticism right maybe it's constructive right does that make sense yeah my my dad is my biggest uh critic but my biggest uh, supporter yeah. at the same time. Yeah. Anytime I do a project, he says, who pays for that? How are you going <laughs> How are you going to do that? But dad, dad, but he's the only one in the family with an 850 credit score. <laughs> so he knows something. <laughs> <I don't. laughs> so that's, that's, that's very funny. So um, yeah, but with the people who are with you in the bad times and the good times, those are the ones that you really listen yeah. to and take their, you may go against it, but really listen to what they're saying because they can see what you can't see because as artists, Brian, we can be delusional sometimes. <laughs> we can be <laughs> delusional lots of times. <laughs> um, I One of my favorite quotes of all time is from my, one of my heroes, Steve Martin. Um, and he said, uh, he said, I've learned through the years that there's no harm in in like pumping oneself up with delusions in between moments of valid inspiration. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Um, That's good. So so now I, I got to ask you the question that everybody comes on here to answer. Every single person who comes on this podcast, I ask the question. Um, I want to hear a story from you about a chance encounter. Uh, somebody that you you met randomly at some point in your life. Maybe you stayed in touch with them. Maybe you only met them for five minutes and they're a stranger and you've never seen them again. But a story of a chance encounter that really impacted you, uh, your life or, or your work. Do you have something for us? Yeah, I would say um, that person probably would be Maurice Starr. Uh, Maurice Starr wrote the song Candy Girl. Out of his head came a group called New Kids on the Block. Mm-hmm. Uh, he created them. He managed them. He made a billion dollars with the new kid property. I met him in the 19... 19- 90s uh, through a couple, Silver Sergeant and Linda uh, Sergeant in Hartford. And I knew kids were at the biggest height in like 91. And I did a big tribute for him at Weaver High School in Hartford. And he, he never he, he never forgot it. He, he had me on stage with new kids. I mean, and then years later, when I was doing Diamond Rough, I asked him to host uh, my Atlanta premiere. He did it and we reconnected and he said, Joe, you've always been on my mind. And he was working with a boy band called NK5, kind of making them like new kids on the block. And I said, Maurice, I want to learn under you. So 
I took half my time and flew to Florida and was learning under him. Then he asked me to be president of his record company, which I did. And the lessons I learned from him is invaluable. I, I went back to college and the lessons I've learned from that man, college hasn't done. He's been my biggest mentor. We were on the set of the new edition movie in LA. He had a massive stroke. And then I took the boys as far as I could take them on the Steve Harvey big shot show and wow. open up for new block. But Maurice lessons today uh, help me with what I'm doing now. Think big, surround yourself with good people and nothing's impossible. He was a millionaire at before 30 with a fifth grade education. Wow. So that one person changed my life even today. Wow. That's so wild. Yeah. Don't you just, do you ever have moments where you think back on moment on, on those like chance encounters and this, the, what if I had made a right turn instead of a left turn that day or stopped for a cup of coffee and I never would have met that person and you follow, right? Like I tell the story of the lady with the hat on the plane, right? Yeah. That, that you follow those stories through and you just go like, everything could have been different if I'd made one different decision. So to that end, I've been thinking a lot because, you know, I get all these amazing folks that come on and like you, Joe, and tell me these stories. And I I keep having these moments where I think how much of success kind of comes down to luck, right? How like all these lucky moments, like, let me ask you, do you believe in luck? I believe in timing. I, I believe I believe in the universe. You track what what you, I think it's a Rumi who said uh, uh, what you are seeking is seeking you. Mm. And I think it's the universe answering you. Mm. And I believe that. Yeah. So if it wasn't Maury Starr, it might've been someone else. Interesting. I was looking for a mentor, someone to show me things that I didn't, didn't know. Ah. It's kind of like Gail King has been that for me too. I mean, uh, she was one of the first person to put, put me on anytime I'm doing a project, she's there. And so I put out the universe. I wanted to be a successful cartoonist and I wrote to her. She answered. Um, I wanted someone like Maurice in my life and it, it came. What you were seeking is seeking you. That's great. It's like, uh, that reminds me of that old quote. Um, uh, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. I believe yeah. that. And that's timing. That's luck. That's God, whatever you want yeah. to call it, the universe. So, and it's real. So do you feel lucky? I feel blessed. I feel favored. That's great. And because energy, I think the energy, we all make mistakes. We've all made mistakes sure. over the years, but I think I've output more positive energy than bad. And that's why it comes back uh, to me. And I try to surround myself with like minds and positive people, you, you, you know, and I like to study the people around you. I mean, Brian, you're a charismatic guy and you probably could sell me anything, <laughs> but I want to know who's around you. Who are you associated with? Then I really know who you are. That's great. That's such a great answer. I I, I feel like that that may that may be the answer to the question I'm kind of about to ask you to bring this on into the end. So feel free to just reiterate that if it's the same answer. But um, before I ask you, you know, to tell us where we can find you and all that, before I ask you like the final cap off question here, I'd like to get one piece of advice from you. What's one piece of advice you would give to young people, young professionals today who are trying to you know, build a sustainable career, build a life worth living in an increasingly unpredictable world. What would you tell a young person, young professional today? Master what you want to do. Be the best at what you want to do and the rest will take care, care of itself. Uh, I know you're doing an interview on me, but Brian, let me ask you a question. You know, people in your position dream about get, going on TED Talk. You were able to do what a lot of people dream about. How were you able to do that? Was it luck? Was it talent? Or was it a combination? I'll, I appreciate the flip flip of the script. I'll actually I'll give you I'll give you the answer because because I've actually really never talked about that. It's it's actually I'm working on a new book. I'm working on my second book right now, and and wow. and the book is about the role of luck and success, which is why I've been asking all these smart right. people about that. And um, it's kind of being born out of the podcast conversations I've been having for the last two years. And um. One of the big stories that I'm going to tell in the book is about how I got the TEDx because I get asked that all the time. And it was both of those things. It was hard work and perseverance and talent and luck. 
It was all of those things. And without luck, it couldn't have happened. But here's here's how it actually happened. The um, I had moved to Connecticut in 2010. I knew nobody in the area. I started just meeting people, right? Just meeting people because I was a just a, at the time a local magician. That's all I was at the time. I was doing card tricks for backyard barbecues, right? My how t- how times have changed, and um, and I loved it. Uh, but I needed to. I, I couldn't figure out how to market. I didn't have the marketing budget, right? I didn't. You know, when you're you, you have to get scrappy when when you're new. When when you're, I mean, I was five <laughs> years in at that point, but I was still yep. you know trying to make it. And so I thought, well, I wonder if I taught magic lessons at some local, you know, performing arts studios or continuing ed programs, if I taught them in the right areas, maybe their parents would think of me for their work company parties and their summer barbecues. <laughs> and and it turns out that strategy worked great. As that's what I did. I started teaching kids magic lessons and group classes. And, and so I was at, I was teaching at a performing arts studio in Manchester, because uh, I was living in Vernon at the time. Now we're talking local That's Connecticut right. stuff, so I won't go too into that for the folks yeah, listening yeah, yeah. all over the world. But you know what I'm talking about. You know Manchester. Yeah. And um, and so I was teaching out of a performing arts studio there for years. And I had no friends in the area because I had moved here on a whim. And so my friends became all the teachers at that performing arts studio. They were very welcoming. And I started going out to karaoke nights with them and hanging. And they became my best friends. So fast forward to 2015. I've made it. I'm touring nationally now. I'm doing pretty well, but wow. I'm just a magician still. I'm a magician. I don't want to say just a magician. I'm a magician. Mm. I haven't made the transition to speaking yet. One or two things here and there, but no transition. And the uh, uh, an English teacher at Manchester High School is putting on a TEDx conference. It's going to be run by the high school students, and he's just going to facilitate and he happens to take his daughters to music lessons at the performing arts studio in Manchester, where for years wow. ago, not anymore, but years earlier, I had taught magic lessons. So he is waiting for his daughters to finish their their lessons. He's just chatting with the, the, the owner of the studio, the studio coordinator, the folks sitting in kind of the office area. And he says, you know, I'm putting on a TEDx conference at Manchester High next year. Do you know anybody who'd wow. be good to speak at it? And both of them, the owner of the studio and the studio coordinator at the exact same time, this is how it was told to me, at the same time, both said, Brian Miller. He called me that day. I accepted. And three months later, I gave the talk and it went to one of the most popular TEDx talks ever given. Right. So the moral of that story is I had spent years and years building relationships with people showing up for for those people for the for, as a professional as a friend as a colleague you know i'd shown up in their lives and done great work and been kind and been helpful and been generous and never asked for anything because i wasn't trying to get a tedx talk and then when the lucky wow. moment happened when the world put an opportunity in place people wow. thought of me so yeah well thank you for asking me that well, that's, that's a great story <laughs> but it's is motivational. You, you know, every day I try to be motivated. It, it could be a renowned speaker. It could be a, a child. It could be anybody. It's everywhere. Yeah. So that's, that's inspirational. Well, thank you. So let's turn it back on you to close this out, Joe. Uh, first, where can we find you? Where do you want people to go look you up? Where do you want them to connect with you? Well, you can always go to my website, www.joeyoung.org. Joeyoung.org. Okay. And again, that'll be in the show notes like everything else. Uh, is there, uh, we'll make sure, is there like a trailer for Diamond Rough, stuff like that we can make sure? Yeah, yeah. If you go to Diamond Rough trailer, now you can watch Diamond Rough on 2B TV. Oh, cool. I mean, it's, it's on different places, but I don't have any control of where it is. <laughs> but I do control uh, 2BTV.com. Great. So you can see it for free on 2BTV. Oh, fantastic. And we got some more movies coming out this year and next year. So it, it, it's a good time. That's fantastic. We'll make sure everybody can go look that up. And I'll ask you this one final question that I've only been asking folks that I'm recording in the middle of our present uh, uh, kind of crisis here. What are you most grateful for today? Health and family. That's a good answer. Listen, Joe, I, I can't thank you enough for, for spending some time. This was wonderful. I feel like you and I could talk about art and life and business for five hours, but I'm not sure if anybody would listen that long. <laughs> hey, but we got to collaborate, bring some 
art to the world. I don't know what we could collaborate on, but love to collaborate with you in some way. Absolutely. I, I have a feeling that there's going to be an un the, the silver lining of the situation we're currently in is going to be an unprecedented global level of community and collaboration is what the silver line that's going to well, come out. You of said this. the key word though, relationships. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, it's it's such a pleasure to know you and to reconnect with you. Stay in touch. And uh, when we come out the other side of this, I'm going to give you a big hug. <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll do that. But I appreciate it, Brian. I appreciate everything you're doing, man. Keep up the good work. Thank you. You as well. This conversation just makes me want to bust out my drawing pencils and T-square again. Before you do the same, here are a few takeaways from this episode. First, your gift is different from your passion. Passion is something you like to do, but your gift, that's something you were born to do. It's part of you, whether you like it or not. And if you nurture your gift with pure intentions, there's a good chance money will follow. Second, the truly successful turn adversity into opportunity. And it's an especially important lesson right now in the midst of this crisis. Yes, the world is a disaster. And yes, there is a lot of tragedy that should not be brushed aside. But there is always an opportunity. And true leaders emerge during times of crisis because they were willing to see past the obstacles and not predict the future, but create the future. And finally, if you're a young professional staring down the most chaotic, unpredictable job economy in a hundred years, start by being the very best at what you do. We don't end there, but we do start there. For related links, the unedited video version of this conversation, and to connect with Joe, head to the show notes on beyondnetworkingpodcast.com. Remember to share this episode with the VIPs in your life who you believe would get value out of it, and use hashtag beyondnetworking on social so I can find you and thank you. This show is ad and sponsor free, always. So one of the easiest and free ways to support that mission is to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. You can also join the community at beyondnetworkingpodcast.com to receive weekly emails every time a new episode drops and all kinds of cool bonus stuff I'm rolling out in the next few months. That said, I'm Brian Miller. This is Beyond Networking, and we'll see you next time. 